4: Monday morning the 15th of January Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am This is Michael Reid on LMFM The Doyle resumes this week after its Christmas break and it looks like there's a busy political season ahead Law and order, immigration and overstretched health service, foreign policy, RTE and replacing the TV licence, power sharing in Northern Ireland and to the UK's legacy bill and road safety and road fatality May all be pressing issues, but there is little doubt that politicians will very soon start to focus on how we are going to vote in upcoming polls, two referendums in March and in June, the local and European elections will take place. Let's speak to Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and a columnist with uh, the Mead Chronicle. A very good morning to you, Gavin, and thank you uh, indeed to Look Ahead. Uh, Uh, at uh, what will begin on Wednesday afternoon at uh, 2 o'clock. As I say, we'll be voting on a a number of occasions uh, this year. Any prospect of a, a general election, though?
5: Uh, This year, I would think so. Uh, Obviously, it it is only within the T-shirts if to decide when the doll will be dissolved. Uh, Micheál Martin and Eamon Ryan have both gone on record to say that they'd like this government to last as long as it possibly can, which, if you translate that into timing, would mean it wouldn't be going to the polls until February or March of next year, 2025. But I think... There is an understanding that uh, when it comes to just the practical business of of governments trying to stay in office, governments doing their best to try and uh, maximise the conditions in their own favour, most people expect that this is going to be the year that will go. What the, the informed thinking now, although nobody seems to know Leo Vargas' mind on this, is that if the budget is a relatively spendthrift budget, if it's a budget in which there is something for everyone, uh, what the government has found that the last couple of budgets, al- although not exactly, you know, fated from the rooftops, have been broadly well-received. So if they have another fairly decent budget with a decent amount of money in the kitty, whether the public finances are in good shape on that basis they will then announce okay right here we go and they'll go to the country dissolve the door the week or two after the budget and then have polling possibly in the first or second week of November so I think that's probably the most likely thing there's one other factor that might play into the timing of that as well which is if there are any government TDs or indeed any opposition TDs for that matter who are elected to the European Parliament in June you'd have a situation where by law you are required to have a by-election by the first or second week of December and it doesn't really seem to make much sense to be having a by-election in the second week of December if actually that TD is going to be staying in office. Was only for a couple of months before a general election anyway. So mm. there's a general view that if there's any dull vacancies, why would you have a by-election just to fill the seat for a couple of weeks or a couple of months? You're better off just dissolving the whole thing and going to the country while you think you've got a good story to tell.
4: If you have a good story to tell or if people are buying into that story, and I suppose the precursor to a general election will be the local elections, and that will gauge the support for each of the parties and the independents, of course.
5: Yeah, possibly so. Now, there, there might be a slightly different dynamic to it because when, when you talk about local elections, I mean, it, it's very much clientele. You know, pe- people are, are sometimes encouraged not to think with the local in mind when you're having a national poll. But of course, a local election, what are you going to think of except the situation on your doorstep? You're going to be thinking about the local property tax and whether it ought to be higher or lower, whether you want councils to be better funded or, or lesser funded. Indeed, immigration, now that it's back on the political agenda very centrally, do, do you think that your area has enough facilities to deal with uh, a rising population or do you think perhaps that your area has been overburdened uh, with people that are coming from other countries? That's all likely to play out in ways that it might not do in a national election, but but in its own way it will be very telling to see exactly how any anti-immigration vote uh, translates into actual seats, whether Sinn Féin's perceived hardening on immigration might be enough to to try and sweep up whatever seats that are there. Because it is a situation that although um, there are some councillors who are clearly critical of the situation as it currently stands, there was basically nobody that got elected in 2019. The, The 949 councillors that were elected in 2019 very few and far between of them were actually running on a ticket of complaining about immigration or the way in which the state handled its asylum burden. Now, obviously, that burden has changed quite a bit in the five intervening years between the rising people applying for international protection and, of course, those coming from Ukraine. But if there is any, um, any gains at all, even if you were to have only a handful of, of anti-immigration councillors elected across the country, that in its own way might make it feel like there is a bit of wind in the sails for that kind of cohort. And then will that translate into winning seats at a general election afterwards or will it turn it into a germane general election issue? It'll be very interesting to see if a general election does follow in the second half, how much themes of that the local elections in June do play into
4: that. Indeed, policies on immigration are changing as we speak. Uh, and uh, you would wonder uh, if this, that is as a result uh, of uh, calculating what way people might vote. If uh, the government, in other words, is seen to be taking a tougher stance than it did previously, uh, perhaps it can win some support back.
5: Yeah, but of course, there, there is, even if you talk about having a tougher stance, I mean, Leo was, was writing yesterday in the Sunday Independence trying to talk up, you know, the idea that Ireland isn't exactly a soft touch on immigration, that some people would have you believe that it's effectively open borders and that there is no vetting for people when they come into Ireland. And he was writing in the Sunday Independence to say that isn't true. He slightly overstated the level of vetting or scrutiny that is applied to, to asylum seekers, but nonetheless, he was making the point that there is some there. When it comes, though, to, there's some people who, who put immigration on the agenda. And their general idea is we can't possibly take an infinite number, so there has to be a cap. When the rubber meets the road, what you'll find is that it is legally impossible to place a cap on the number of asylum seekers applying for asylum, applying for refugee status in the country, quite simply because under international law, anyone that arrives on your shores has the right to request asylum, and you have to go through the rigours of considering their case on a case-by-case basis. So you can't just decide at the start of the year you know, we, we might have accommodation for 10,000 as a push and mm-hmm. say we end in the first 10,000 and no more because the ten thousand and first and first person are, that arrives on your shores might be a legitimate case and they have a right under international law to have it considered. So what you'll find is that, therefore, if there is a demand for there to be some kind of a cap or an upper mm-hmm. limit on the number that we can accommodate, Although, of course, there's a limit in practice about how many beds you can find and the likes. In, in practice, in theory, you can't ever say, right, we're pulling them the shutters and we're not allowing any yeah. more in. And that's going to be a real difficulty for those who are trying to defend the current status as we get closer to election day. The
4: other side of that coin, of course, it is that you can say whatever you want in a, an election campaign.
5: Yeah, the old Pat <laughs> rabbit <thing. That's> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. You govern in big themes and you don't you don't govern in fine print. And, you know, mm. you, you might promise to have a cap and then you could turn around the day after the election and say, oh, we received legal advice. And it turns out that under international law, the, the UN Convention on Refugees, we are required to treat everyone fairly anyway. So what mm. can we do? Um, but this it, it does kind of bleed in, though, to, to a bigger theme, which is that, You know, the the closer we get to Election Day and indeed afterwards, you you saw uh, before Christmas when the government changed the the, um, accommodation proposition for Ukrainians and the welfare rates and the like. That was effectively an admission that they reckon that they're reaching the end of the line when it comes to accommodation. You know, up until now, it always held out with the existing system because they always knew there was some other hotel that they could bring on board. There was some other facility that they could convert to housing. When they're talking about trying to cut back on the state guarantee, you know that they're reaching the end of the line. Hmm. But we still have, you know, last year was somewhere in the region of between, I don't have the figure to hand, somewhere in the region of twelve to 15,000 people coming to the country under the IP system, direct provision as we used to know it, and then still in the region of 70,000 Ukrainians. That's a lot of people that the stage wasn't designed to cater to. And if you have another ten or 15,000 coming this year, plus hmm. whatever number from Ukraine, you know, the, a, a genuine question comes as to where you find the bed, literally even the mattresses for them to stay in. And if it continues to escalate as it does with the war in Ukraine showing no sign of stopping. Maybe that war not developing in Ukraine's favour. You might have a lot of men who've stayed behind of conscription age who've stayed behind to participate in the war deciding, right, that's that, I can't be part of this anymore, coming to join their, their wives and their children in Ireland. Yep. And that that's just ticking up the population all all the while with in circumstances where we're just not sure where they're all going
4: to stay. Okay, I I think when we get into the election campaigns, we are going to have unusual campaigns or campaigns that wouldn't have been usual in this country because I I think we're going to see the race card. Uh, And I, I don't think that there's any doubt about that. To what extent, time will tell. We've referendums then... In March, and I think we're going to see some uh, unusual campaigning I- I in those referendums. And they could be very bitter, they could be very divisive, because we're going to be asking people to define what a family is yeah. and how many people make up a family to head a family, and indeed the recognition of gender identity.
5: It's interesting that you introduce it in those terms because those were terms that the government was very keen to try and avoid. You know, For example, there was one proposal that was put to government which they rejected, which was guaranteeing gender equality in the Constitution. And they've decided they're not going to have that because the Constitution broadly already offers equal treatment to everybody. So they didn't want to have some protection stated twice and you'd kind of have this hierarchy of equality, if that makes sense. But nonetheless, they're still having this discussion around the role of women in the home. And, and most people would start out by instinct, saying that a constitution which references a role of a woman and the duties that a woman might have in the home they'd consider that to be anachronistic or outdated or not representative of, of 21st century Ireland. But yes, actually a lot of the problem is the nature of the wording that they propose to insert uh, this, this uh, clause about um, you know, the role of carers in the home. They, they've kind of come up with this word salad where they were trying to simultaneously have wording that sounded very lofty and aspirational, but also wording which in truth didn't put any binding obligation on any government to ever do anything at all. Like They just wanted something that sounded very nice and cozy and aspirational. And the wording that they found is so beige in many people's eyes, like it's it's like diet water, um, that it, it's just so unattractive to many people that they wonder why would you bother tinkering with the Constitution at all. And some people also find that, that whether this is an argument that people take up or not is entirely up to them. But you will hear the argument being made that that existing clause, albeit maybe anachronistic in some people's eyes, is the Constitution's only reference to women having a different role in society than men. Now, whether you think that's an appropriate reference or not is up to you. But the government is proposing to eliminate that one reference, that one distinction between the role of women and the role of men on International Women's Day. And it'll be a very interesting debate as to whether people think that feminism or the role of the cause of women is better served by eliminating this distinction or celebrated this distinction. You know, there's, there's some, some people who think that women should be celebrated because of their differences, the things that they do, which are different to men. And then other people view feminism as, you know, we should have true equality in society and nobody should be presumed to have a different function to anyone else. So that'll, that'll be really, really interesting when the, when the debate does warm up, that one of the referendum campaigns hmm. actually only formally getting underway today and planning to go to the launch later on. And it'll be interesting just to see exactly how that takes place. And then the other question, as you mentioned, is is the role about uh, family and and as you phrase it in the introduction, there, how many people might be considered to head up a family. Now that's an argument being posed by some critics of this wording that if you eliminate the the link or the the presumed link between family and marriage, in other words, that family is be- uh, family is based on marriage. The marriage is the core ingredient of the family, and of course, marriage, as we understand that, is only uh, participated in ever by two people. And um, if you break that link, are you inherently endorsing other types of? long-standing adult relationship polygamy uh, troubles as was suggested last week or are you merely recognising that not all families are built on marriage, that there are families where the marriage has ended but the family is still durable, the household still goes on. Uh, households which have never had two parents in them because one parent uh, gave birth and brought up their child alone. Um, is it merely a recognition that there are different types of family and that the Constitution shouldn't give preference or, or uh, precedence to one form over another? Um, one thing which is, is really fascinating and I, when you were introducing mm. the question, I was just thinking back to this. Yeah. When I was involved in student politics in UCD, I used to get really upset about that claim that student politics was vicious because the stakes were so low. Because, you know, when you're involved in it, you think student politics is really important and really massive. And then actually, as you you grow up over time, you realise that the rows you were having about you know, whether USI should support a ban on whaling in the seas off Japan, you realise that these rows were so vicious because there was nothing at stake. So all you were arguing about was ideology, in which case then the, the, the row could get really vicious because it was a totally, a totally uh, you know, cerebral row. There was nothing practical about the row that you were having. And I'm inclined to think that the referendums might go that way, because in truth, although the, the Constitution refers to the role of women in the home, that has never really you know, been brought to court, and yeah. the courts have never taken that as an influence, or they've never struck down a law because of the role that women are supposed to have in the home. It's entirely a symbolic clause. So then, if it's only symbolic, and it doesn't actually really change the way in which the law works, then it just becomes a totally symbolic change, and that therefore then the row could become you know, really down and dirty because people get very head up and very emotional about symbolic things that don't really have any practical impact and very, very emotional debate as a result.
4: And referendums have surprised us on many times in the past. Gavin, we'll leave it there for the moment. It all kicks off at at two o'clock on Wednesday and people won't be surprised either to hear that housing will be topping the agenda with a Sinn Féin motion once again. Thank you indeed for joining us as always. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and the Columnist with the Meath Chronicle. Michael,
1: Michael Reid on LMFM.
4: Okay, here's a, a really weird thing for you. Louth County Council is meeting uh, this morning so we're going to speak to a Dublin City Councillor uh, and not for the first time in relation uh, to a meeting of Louth County Council. Damien O'Farrell is back with us uh, and good morning to you, Damien. Just worth mentioning uh, as well that Uh, Damien O'Farrell has achieved something, I I think, that very few people listening to this programme will ever contemplate achieving. And that is that Damien O'Farrell once had an audience with the Pope uh, and Pope Francis listened to the concerns that Damien O'Farrell has about clerical child sexual abuse because he himself was a victim of sexual abuse at the hands of a Christian brother. He represents many people who are in the same position uh, but are finding it absolutely impossible to get justice because of a legal strategy that the Christian Brothers have adopted and we've talked about many times on the programme. Damien good morning to you, thanks for coming in to us I say you're here just ahead of the meeting of Loud County Council and I think you want to speak to the councillors on their way into that meeting.
3: Yes I do Michael and th- thank you very much I suppose you mentioned there that I met the Pope and, and I had a lot of good things to say after I met the Pope because there's good people in the church, there is some good people and he is trying to move it forward. You know, but this has been going on for a while now and the CEO, the CEO has remained silent. And there's been plenty of opportunities for her to speak, but she, she hasn't. And any reasonable person would have to be suspicious. And the victims are suspicious as to the motivation behind their treatment. And if you look at the facts, I want to take you to the councillors and people listening to look at some of the facts mm. and how a state body has let these victims down. We had a perfectly lawful motion, a reserve function motion that Councillor Yore was good enough to put up with us to rescind the freedom of draw from Edmund Garvey. We had a seconder, Bernie Collins. Both the standing orders uh, permitted the motion and Loud County Council's own legal advice mentioned that there was nothing in the standing orders preventing this motion. Uh, Initially there were issues from management with the wording, there was interference from management with the wording of the motion at the beginning. The motion was disallowed then, amazingly, it was disallowed from the agenda last May. And we believe that the CEO overstepped, overstepped her authority.
4: Right, okay.
3: She overstepped her authority. Um, the victims of child abuse, they were the people who were denied their rights when she did that. So the victims of child sexual abuse were denied their right of representation at a county meeting via their elected representative, Maeve Yore and Bernie Collins. Conlon, Le- yeah. Conlon. Legal advice given to senior officials, officials was not a tier to. We, we, we did that on the show. The Kahirlock Connor Keelan, was not consulted. That's part of the local government actually should be consulted and that was also mm. in the legal advice. The council was not consulted prior to the withdrawal of the motion. That's another. This is a reserve function. Councillors have to be brought into this. It's their prerogative. It was reported on LFM News that the CEO was relying on legal advice to withdraw the motion. Nobody has seen this legal advice. The response to LFM's freedom, infor- freedom of information request has been absolutely scandalous and it's also a breach of legislation. Promises were made to the Caherlah Councillor Keelan that he would be shown the legal advice, but these have been reneged on. Supportive councillors have not been recognised or valued, and that's part of the, the CEO's mm. job to recognise and value uh, councillors. That hasn't happened. Um, victims at a July meeting were spoken to in a very unfriendly manner by the CEO. She was shouting at them down from the back of the room. Right. It just just not called for. Um, there was a few. They'd never been at a council meeting before, mm. so this was this was new to them. Um, there was a refusal by council management to address any of these issues or engage with the media. There was then, after the, the after um, the freedom was taken from Brother Garvey, um, actions agreed by Drogheda Council to take the, to take the freedom from Garvey they weren't carried out, and I believe that's a further breach of the Local Government mm. Act. How do you mean? Well, he's still on the roll. Oh. Uh,
4: Brother Garvey is still on the roll. Right. Um, There was to be a note put on that roll, wasn't there, to say that it's no longer recognised?
3: Yeah, when I asked why the name was still on the roll of honour, and that there was no note that the Drogheda Borough Council was no longer recognised by... uh, that Drogheda Borough Council no longer recognised Brother Garvey as freedom of Drogheda, the CEO replied that we had decided to leave it for a period in case of a judicial review. Mm. I just thought that was that. I think that was the straw that broke the the camel's back, and it's probably why I'm here. Explain why I'm to here me, today. Yeah, yeah. Well, we had decided to leave. So, so something was decided by the, the councillors in Droit. It's a statutory meeting, and they made a decision to decide okay. something. And then the then the CEO decides to leave it for a period in case of a judicial review. Right. So so this is total disregard for the councillors, and it's totally dis- total disregard mm. for the f- for the for the victims. Right. And I think who who's we. Yeah. Who's we? Is that dissenting councillors? Is that the Christian brothers? Um, had the brothers been in touch with it? This is what we need, the freedom of information, um, mm-hmm. all that all that information. Had the brothers been in touch after the decision? Had the brothers been in touch at the beginning of the process? And what was the motivation in trying to stop this motion appearing on the agenda? Who gained from mm-hmm. it? Because yeah. the victims didn't gain from mm-hmm. it. The brothers g- gained from it. I think there was, a, there was some mis, mis- uh, misdirected loyalty on, on, by the CEO, that this that this motion was removed. This, I
4: think this, this is the suspicion you have. This right, is the suspicion It's just a suspicion. You, 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 said, you said you have suspicions about the motivation for the way the CEO acted. Yeah, I've listed a multitude of reasons how
3: we were knocked back. There's like forces moving against this motion, um, and I have suspicions. It just doesn't add up. Any reasonable person if a councillor is listening, if a reasonable councillor would think, how has this happened? This never mm. happened before on, on Loud County Council. And I've, as I said, I've spoken to councillors around the country and it's never happened before in the country. Nobody knows how a motion would be would be treated with such contempt mm. that it just did not want to be discussed. It was just put into a... Bag. And if if we hadn't gone, if your show hadn't covered this, mm. if Maeve Yor eventually had to get legal, in order to get the motion back onto the agenda, yeah. she had to go to legal. So there was legal letters uh, written mm. between her team and the council team, and eventually the motion got back on. If she hadn't done that, mm. the freedom would still be there. OK, and the,
4: but, but the, the, the CEO uh-huh. has said to the councillors uh, it was based on legal advice uh, and I suppose the impression you'd get from that is that uh, she was advised uh, that the council could end up getting sued as a result of that. Uh, and I suppose uh, it's easily argued that it would be remiss to go ahead if that was the case. Uh, should councillors uh, be taking the CEO at her word when she says she has legal advice that suggested she remove the motion from the agenda without consulting with anybody at all? The CEO was, is answerable to the councillor. She's answerable to the
3: chair. The chair has asked to see the legal advice. He was promised sight of the legal advice. This was reneged on. He hasn't seen it. No one's seen it. The free, it hasn't been produced in the Freedom of Information. They've breached the Act Act. So no, I don't think that we'll be taking anyone's word for it to see. We have to see the legal advice to see where it says some of the victims. And I would have my suspicions
4: of whether this legal advice exists at all. Why? Why can't we see it? Well, it, it, when you say we <coughs> see it, if the coherer if the oh yeah, yeah. if the coherer saw it and came back and said, I- "I'm satisfied that there is legal advice there in line with what the CEO is saying."
3: Yeah, I think that would. Uh, because that you'd have to trust the caretaker would be at, would be looking after the best interests of the council,
4: yeah,
3: and the councillors, and that is probably happens the odd time if there's information that people uh, can't look at it or if they feel that it's very private. Yeah. But this is legal. I mean, I, yeah, I can't think of any reason. Mm. I can't think of one reason why the councillors cannot
4: see this legal advice it can be redacted mm. all, the, all the letters It doesn't need, on it. it doesn't need to be put in the public domain because no, uh, I mean <laughs> it is legally privileged yeah. which, which is a, a technical yeah. term which means that it should not be disclosed publicly yeah. but you're not suggesting no it can be redacted and just the, the part that it says that we need, that this
3: motion should not be on the agenda there's nothing wrong with the motion we're talking now about as if there was something wrong with this motion this motion was a lawful motion it wasn't doing anything to anybody it's nothing. There was nothing wrong with this motion. You read it out about five, six, seven, or eight times on your show. Mm. This is all just—I don't know what—I it, it's, it's, can't describe it. Yeah. But we shouldn't even be talking about it. There's nothing wrong with. There's nothing wrong with our motion. Our motion was was unlawfully, I believe, and I'm suspicious it was it was withdrawn from the from the council and the councillor. The CEO needs to explain today to the councillors how that happened how was it withdrawn well, and why did they not adhere why did they not adhere to their own legal advice that the, that the, that the chairperson should be
4: notified should be informed that the council should be informed that wasn't to adhere to and the act which governs Louth County Council and all local authorities the local yeah. government act says that this is a reserve function of uh, the councillors so the CEO didn't have the authority this is the argument you're making yeah. to, t- to 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 uh, disallow the motion yeah but it's not an argument I'm making. Uh, th- this is this is in the Local Government Act, and we saw on a letter from a solicitor suggesting <laughs> that she would consult
3: with the Kerela. Yeah, because the letter from the solicitor was adhering to the to the Local Government Act. The person had obviously read who the, the solicitor who wrote the letter to it. I think it was a person called Joe, one of the officials you mentioned on on your show. Um, was adhering to the local government act and had also read the standing orders. There was no, It mentioned as well there was nothing in the standing orders that prohibited this motion from coming onto the agenda. The only person that seems to have, um, and, and we talk about the CEO, mm. The CEO is res- under the local government is responsible for the you know they, he, she, the CEO can delegate functions, but she cannot delegate responsibility. So we're talking about the CEO here. The, the CEO is responsible. So the re- CEO is responsible for that, for that motion not appearing on the on the agenda. She took that decision. Mm. The book stops with her, and the councillors today need to question the CEO. She needs to. I believe she needs to make a public statement because, as I said, I mentioned before, we've been let down a third time. The Taoiseach shock of this country. Um, apologized to the men that I speak on behalf of. He apologized to those, specifically those men, day pupils that were sexually abused in schools, day pupils. These are all day pupils. And he said, we will not be let down a third time. And we have been let down a third time, but this state body, we've been let down by Loud County Council and I'm pleading with the mm. councillors to raise this matter today. And if you don't get satisfactory answers today, have a special meeting, a dedicated meeting,
4: meeting again. You, you well, also... Well, I wanted to ask you about that because um, we spoke to the Sinn Féin whip, uh, Kevin Meenan, on the programme on mm. Friday uh, and he said he expected that standing orders would be postponed today. That's... Uh, uh, suspended. About, suspended, in about 15 minutes time and that will allow for some discussion uh, to take place on this uh, do you think that there will be enough time uh, as somebody who's got more experience uh, than anybody else in this room about how council meetings uh, operate as a Dublin city councillor yourself to deal with an issue like this because it is pretty complex well it's, it's all it all depends on the spirit of the
3: um of the of the CEO and of the chairperson, that they make time? You know, and uh, it, it could be it could be done. But if it's not done, there's other powers open to the councillors. There's other powers. They can put a motion through that they can instruct the CEO to get le- their own legal advice, the councillor's legal advice, to see whether she was within her rights to withdraw the motion, and to see was was she is she within her rights to not show the legal advice to the to the council. They can get independent legal opinion from a, from a senior counsel to do that. Okay. But it would actually be a disgraceful waste of taxpayers' money when you think about it, if they had to do that as well, because mm. the CEO just won't show it to them, won't show it to the chair. You know, we, we shouldn't even be discussing this this mm. a year after. There's other more important things to do. And now People have had flooding, you mentioned that, but flooding issues. And, and a meeting is going to be taken up with, with this today, just because information it isn't, people, they're not being frank with the councillors. And this is, as I said, it's a reserve function. It's a councillor's Job. It's not an executive function. The, exe- mm. the, the executive, the CEO, has other functions that they're called yeah. executive functions. But this particular function is the prerogative of this of the councillors, and mm. that's enshrined
4: in the local government act. Also, so you're, you're questioning, though I think you did already question whether this legal advice exists, and you're asking what was the motivation of the chief executive in removing this motion from the agenda. Uh, and uh, indeed uh, taking such uh, uh, position on this particular motion up yeah. to the very end when in September uh, more legal advice was given to the council from the chief executive suggesting that a council could be sued. Yeah, I I, I have suspicions that there's no written legal advice because I can't think
3: a lawyer would, would actually write that down on paper that there was anything wrong with that motion and put their name over it. I just can't imagine because there's nothing wrong with it. There was nothing wrong with it. And then at the very last minute, the CEO came in and said that the councillors could be acting in ultra That's without authority. That was only at the day, I think, before the meeting. Now, I got on the council. It was a year before. So it's a year before they start looking at, um, for looking for legal advice. And a year later, the CEO says they may be acting within, within ultra vires without authority. I can tell you now that if they were acting without it, she would have told them. We hmm. would have seen that letter. It would have been given to them. And I would have been told, and that would have been the end of the matter. So okay. I'd be very suspicious of the motivations behind this. Um, and it's like I think there was misplaced loyalty for an order, uh, for a person, a man in a man in the city, possibly misplaced loyalty for that person. But it denied the rights of the of the uh, of the victims. There was no. I've said this on your program before. There was a disregard for the rights of the victims. There was mm. there
4: was more regard held for Brother Garvey.
0: Right.
4: Serious questions over to the councillors now. Uh, they're about uh, to go into session and uh, I think uh, we'll be able to bring you uh, news of what uh, occurs at that meeting of Lowes County Council before we finish up uh, today uh, because of course LMFM will be monitoring it for you. Thanks indeed as always for coming in to us uh, this morning. That's uh, Damien O'Farrell who's a Dublin City Councillor, a victim of child sexual abuse at the hands of a Christian brother, represents many other men who are in that position. Uh, And somebody who uh, got an audience with uh, the Pope uh, to make uh, his views known on how the Church has responded and has indeed been on this programme many times, uh, complaining about how Louth County Council has been responding uh, to... The grievances uh, that uh, people have in relation to heinous crimes. Thanks Damien as I say for coming into to us today.
1: Michael, Michael Reid on, on LMFM
4: Some, A response uh, to Damien O'Farrell, Tony Gribbon in touch uh, again from uh, the Dramore Group which is the survivors of clerical sex abuse from uh, the Diocese of uh, Dramore, saying that uh, with uh, the Catholic Church in steady decline in Ireland, what is more apparent is the role of uh, the state including local government as one of its secondary agents. In the abuse of adults abused as children by the church. The fullest democracy will never be achieved until we have a fully secular state where politicians, national and local, including their executives, are held accountable for wrongs for which they are responsible. A CEO of a local government hollering at victims of clerical sexual abuse in a public meeting is calf. Q-esque, says Tony, who also says enough of this. Uh, another text uh, from somebody who says, uh, well they're asking really, uh, if uh, the position of CEO on Louth County Council is in question, is that position tenable now for Joan Martin? Deirdre Kell?" saying, dreadful carry on with Louth County Council and this needs to be sorted out big time. Thank you uh, Deirdre and I think as Damien was saying, there's so many other issues that the council should be focusing on today, but instead a lot of the time will be taken up on this issue, which could have been cleared up with some frank, honest, open, transparent talking had any of that happened prior to now. Thanks if you've been in touch. If not, our phone number is 0419832000 Text or WhatsApp 086 1800 658 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. From the 1st of February, you'd be mad to throw out bottles or cans uh, because it'd be the same as throwing money in the bin with uh, the establishment of Ireland's uh, first deposit return scheme. Let's speak to Neve Kelly, who's head of communications and marketing at Return. Good morning to you, Neve, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You'll be paying more for your drinks uh, but you'll be able to get the money back when you return the bottles Uh, that's the story uh, to put it in very simplistic terms I suppose
6: it is Michael good morning to everyone thanks for having me on it's really from the first of February Michael that once you start seeing the return logo on plastic bottles and aluminium and steel cans from 150 mils to 3 litres you'll pay an extra deposit in addition to the price But as soon as you return those to any participating store nationwide, you get your full deposit back. And the whole idea here is that we value, as you said, the only people that lose out are the consumers who don't bring them back. But it's really to value our resources. And we also have to reach EU recycling targets, which are very high at 77% by 2025 and 90% by 2029. Mm. So it's really getting every consumer involved and also cleaning up the countryside as well. Oh, absolutely. We yeah, yeah, it and and it.
4: it really works very well for that yeah. reason. Um, but isn't this something we used to do years ago in this country?
6: It is. I believe a early 70s, I think, there was for glass bottles. Yeah. Now, glass bottles are not included in this scheme because we're really good for recycling glass. I think we're at over 80%. But it's the same kind of idea except with this obviously from the 1st of February there's a transition period but once you start seeing those bottles and cans you pay out that deposit first and then it's fully refunded when you bring Mm -hmm. it back.
4: Yeah and as you say it really is a a good way of cleaning up the countryside but everywhere the towns uh, and villages around the country because I've seen this in action over many years elsewhere and I've always been amazed as to why we didn't introduce or reintroduce a a scheme like this in this country. But if you take a big event, uh, and people, of course, will have uh, been to many outdoor events uh, over the years themselves, and you know that when you're leaving, you're leaving behind a huge uh, outside bin or tip or whatever the case may be because of all of the rubbish that's left behind. Uh, But in other countries, you see people going around picking up stuff out of that rubbish uh, because it's worth money uh, and that's what's going to happen here Uh, you'll be able to go back to the shop and get your 15 cent or 25 cent back as the case may be
6: yeah and I think Michael a lot of people already are coming to us and there is great support for this but we're looking at it as an opportunity to fundraise as well be it in the community or a sports club or an organization that let's say again as you said if somebody else isn't interested in bringing back their plastic bottle or can to get their deposit back that at least somebody else can do it and that it is seen as a valuable resource and just to say to listeners you can recycle plastic bottles up to seven times and you can recycle aluminium infinitely so they really are very valuable and we Mm. want to kind of keep them in the loop for as long
4: as possible. Indeed, I've seen people in other countries too going around collecting these bottles all day uh, regardless of big uh, events because I suppose the rest of us uh, are guilty of leaving them, uh, hanging around, uh, finish a drink and put it down wherever it is you're standing you see it all the time. Uh, But in other countries, people are going around picking them up. You see supermarket trolleys full of them.
6: Yeah, and I mean, again, it is a proven method. Deposit return is a proven method of really increasing your recycling rates. We are going to be the 16th country in the EU, but there's over 40 internationally. And places like Germany, Sweden, all of those have them since the early 2000s. And really, it is a big habit change, but it's something that we can do very easily. You know, once you get into the habit of actually, I suppose, a bit like the plastic bag, is, you know, if you're going to do your shop, that you bring back your bottles and cans in the same way that you put your plastic bags and you get those ready for when you're doing your shop. So it is an extra effort and Mm. we do appreciate that. But I think it's really, really well worth it.
4: Yeah. Uh, And you'll be hoping that people won't put them into the recycle bins, I take it. Or does that matter in terms of, of, of the objective of this?
6: Uh, well, I suppose we don't want anybody to be out of pocket. So if you've paid a deposit, it makes sense, as you said, that you wouldn't throw it away. People who are recycling are brilliant. What um, I would say, the reason for the introduction part of it, for the introduction of deposit return, is the separate collection, aside from the mixed dry recyclables in your bin at present, it ensures that there's a much higher quality of recycled And there's also no cross-contamination. And that's why it's being done separately to the recycling bins. But as you said, there's also then the added issue of people who don't even go near the recycling bin and either throw it on the ground or it just goes straight to landfill. And that's a problem too. So it's really trying to capture both sides of that, encourage people to recycle them, bring them back to the shop, and then you get your money back. And it is that bit of extra effort But again, as I said, it's really... Um, the collective coming together and valuing the resources that we have.
4: Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, Some people do put plastic bottles in the bin, you know, on the streets, the landfill bins, and you see people in other countries going around and looking through the bins and taking them out, uh, which is why I think these schemes work so well. I mean, they're sad stories and there's no doubt about that, but it it is if you like, another way or an opportunity for those people to get some money that maybe they wouldn't have uh, and able to get otherwise. Uh, John is texting us uh, this morning, Neve, and he says, uh, you'd like me to ask you uh, about what you mean when you say refunded. Is that cash back or will it be a voucher for the premises you've returned the bottle to or the can to?
6: Yeah, it's a great question. And there's kind of three, let's say, areas for retailers. If you're a smaller retailer... It's that time of the year.
2: Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss.
6: Taylor, you can apply for what's called a take-back exemption. So if our shop has a take-back exemption, they don't need to take back those bottles and cans, but they need to display a poster that will show a QR code or the website address That brings you to a map showing you where all the participating stores are nationwide. But for the retailers who are taking back the empty undamaged bottles and cans, they can either do that through a reverse vending machine, an RVM. So you or I could go in with 10, 15 plastic bottles and cans, pop them into that reverse vending machine, will be issued a voucher and you go up to the till and you can either get your money back or you can use it against store purchase. So that's what we mean by refunded. There are also some retailers who are opting for what's called over-the-counter return. So you would hand over your bottles and cans over the counter. The store assistant checks them. And again, you can either get your money back either in cash or against store purchase.
4: Okay, tell me about the vending machines, if you would, because, I mean, if... uh one of uh, the people I was talking about earlier on uh, uh, arrives uh, with a shopping trolley full of uh, plastic bottles mm-hmm. or a 14 year old um, looking to earn some money over the summer holidays, decides yeah. to go around the town, cleaning up the town and all that and ends up with bags and bags and bags of bottles. Uh, how will these machines work? Do you put them in one at a time or will you be able to heap them in?
6: No, at the moment what we're seeing is most retailers have reverse vending machines or RVMs that would be one at a time. But now they go through in a matter of a second. Let's say it reads the barcode, it reads the shape of the bottle, and you just keep popping them in. Um, I'm sure that retailers, as the system beds in, will be looking at when people are coming in and whether they need to get additional reverse vending machines or if there's quieter time we don't anticipate queues because i think we've seen from other deposit return schemes the average seems to be about 15 bottles and cans but i'm sure there will be times that there may mm. be a queue if somebody as you said arrives with you know a huge bag but they do go through very,
4: very quickly. Yeah, okay. Uh, And uh, I suppose people as well will allow them to mount up at home uh, until they're going to do their weekly shop or or something like that. Uh, But we'll all get used to it in in no time. Uh, But this is only for new bottles that have this logo on it, and they won't be available till February, as you say. In other words, if if anybody listening to us at the moment has a a lot of plastic bottles or cans at home, uh, well, they may recycle them because they won't be getting any refund on them
6: yeah and i suppose michael what's most important from the 1st of february there is a transition period where older stock will still be on the shelf but to say to all your listeners if you are charged a deposit then you will get your deposit back Mm. so you know if you're not charged a deposit you're not entitled to get that deposit back okay so i suppose that's the easiest way of putting it and watch out for the return logo
4: Yeah, Uh, somebody else texting us saying, We did this 50 years ago with mineral bottles and milk bottles uh, with all of uh, the modern technology to reinvent uh, the wheel. Uh, Here we are again. That's uh, Breed. Uh, I I took it from your earlier response uh, that you're far too young to remember that, Uh, Neve. I wouldn't say
6: that now, Michael. I wish I was. I have a vague recollection of hearing about it.
4: All right. Okay. So so some of us are are not in such a comfortable position to be able to say that. But thank you for joining us uh, today. Thanks
6: so Uh, much, Michael.
4: I I think it's going to be uh, a great thing, uh, simply put. Uh, Anyway, uh, that's uh, Neve Kelly, Head of Communications and Marketing at Return uh, and uh, the deposit return scheme, as you've been hearing, goes live on the 1st of February. That's when the bottles with uh, these logos will start to appear and they're the bottles that you'll be able, uh, eventually there'll be nothing but uh, bottles that have Deposit on them, but they're the bottles at the beginning that you'll be able to return uh, and get money back on, uh, and that uh, certainly will uh, be interesting in time to come. If you'd like to comment on the program today, our phone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp us on 086 658. Email michael at lmfm.ie.
1: Michael, Michael Reed on, on
4: LMFM. Now, a, a number of uh, comments uh, that have uh, come to us. A couple of people asking about the condition of the bottles and cans if you're going to recycle them. James Andrade is saying, is it true that we won't be able to squash down the bottles before we put them into the recycling centre uh, and uh, that uh, it would be great uh, if homeless people go around with shopping trolleys picking up bottles uh, the way you see it in major cities in the US. Uh, thanks uh, for that, uh, James. Somebody saying what about 5 litre bottles? Yes, I think they'll uh, be r- refundable as well. You'll have a deposit on them because it'll be a 25 cent on anything uh, over 500. Oh, no, it's only 150 to five hundred milliliters. That's the second question <laughs> I have to No, It is for 500 to 3 litres. Uh, so no on 5 litres uh, is the answer. Bridie uh, isn't impressed. She says, I want to know how an old age pensioner is supposed to get get them to a collection site if you don't have transport. So I'd have to hump them in my little shopping trolley so my cans and bottles are going into the bin, which I pay for. I think it's a nonsense, says Bridie. Uh, sorry about that, uh, Bridie, uh, but um, it really isn't uh, going to be that difficult. Uh, you're talking about... Empty plastic bottles. Uh, I mean, I suppose most of us would have a a few. Uh, They weigh less than your shopping is going to weigh uh, and you're going to get your money back on them. Otherwise, you'd be throwing money in the bin uh, because they'll be worth 15 cent or 25 cent. Uh, Eddie Mack, uh, like James, uh, questioning the condition of uh, the bottles, he says uh, they won't take damaged cans as they have to be in perfect condition going into the machines. And uh, the new deposit return scheme barcode Uh, on each has to be uh, seen as well. Uh, A listener in Castle Blaney wants to know will plastic sauce bottles count? Uh, Well they're all interesting uh, questions. Uh, I think it'll have to have the logo on it uh, and that's the one thing that we can say with certainty. Uh, I can't imagine that uh, plastic bottles uh, that have uh, that are contaminated like that uh, will be accepted. Uh, but thanks uh, indeed uh, for your messages. we we'll try to get some uh, clarity to some of those questions that you've raised as well. Now, uh, we a text earlier on from a Navin listener who says Michael, it's a waste of taxpayers money changing speed signs as there's thousands of Drivers with no tax insurance driving while banned on multiple learner permits. So the government think that they will obey new speed signs. They're living in cuckoo land. More speed vans are needed as guards haven't the time to police this issue properly. Well, the speed limits are set to reduce and fairly dramatically so it has to be said. Um, Jack Chambers is in the news today for uh, very different reasons to do uh, with uh, personal issues uh, to him. Uh, But uh, he has also been making news because of his plan uh, that has gone to Cabinet, which will reduce speed limits, the Minister says, by the end of this year. Blake Boland is Head of Communications with AA Ireland. and A very good morning to you, Blake, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Motorways will stay the same, but other roads are, are going to see a reduction in uh, the fastest speed that you can travel on, it, it would seem, from what the Minister has said, by the end of this year. Tell, tell us a little bit more about what's planned, if you would, please.
0: Yeah, sure. Well, secondary national roads are looking at dropping from 100 down to 80, local and rural roads from 80 down to 60, and then urban roads from 50 down to 30. So, as you said, motorways and national roads are not planning on changing. But just a note on that, just a little caveat as well, that these are they're not set in stone so basically the local authorities will have the ability to increase those limits or to leave them as they were if they deem that it's fit so on a road that's got good markings there's a let's say a national you know secondary road it's got a uh, centre divide there's good turn signals there's extra lanes for turning off they might say do you know what we don't need to drop this down to 80 here mm. 100 is fine and they'll stick with that
4: and but will they have the to justify concept. that
0: so, yeah, they're, they're going through assessments, and, and one of the things that we're happy about seeing here is that there's a little bit more joined up thinking across the country than we usually see with some of these things. So all of the local authorities are currently going through assessments. That'll take a, a significant amount of time, as you can imagine, just to, to make sure that everybody's on the same peg here, because we, we don't want a situation where you're driving between counties and the speed limit drops with, without you knowing it or with it's proper signage. So they're, they're assessing all the roads to make sure that this is a national and kind a of cohesive effort.
4: Right. Uh, all of the speed signs will have to be changed. Uh, that's going to cost about fifteen million euro, I think, is the estimate.
0: Yeah, that's just to change the signs. Um, y- you know, the, the, there's a lot to this as well. We're going to need greater enforcement. Um, you know, there's, there's just not just the signs, but there's all the the different um, experts uh, and consultants that will have to be hired off the back of this as well. So, yeah, there, there's going to be a very, very significant investment of, of not just money but uh, but time
4: as well. Right. Um, Is it a good idea or a bad uh, idea do you think? Uh, Because a a lot of people uh, would feel that the speed limits are uh, appropriate for the most part and uh, that idea of reducing from 100 to 80 will not be enforceable because people are so used to driving at 80, which in old money is 50 miles an hour on roads that used to be 60 miles an hour.
0: Yeah, we're kind of, we're, you know, cautiously, very cautiously welcoming this. Um, we, we've seen a very, very tragic 2023 in terms of road deaths, and 2024 has started off even worse. So on the one hand, you know, we recognise this is going to frustrate some people. It might make your journey, you know, instead of in a 46-minute journey, it might be a 49-minute journey now. So it will frustrate little people. Sometimes the, the signs you might feel, Do you know what, I think 20 or 30 is faster here is okay. Mm. But at the same time, on the back of the the, the tragic deaths and, and terrible accidents that we're having, it becomes a little bit harder to, to argue against these things. Maybe but so, but a it, lot of
4: challenges. It, maybe so, uh, but uh, reality could prove uh, to be different. If people don't believe that the speed limit is appropriate, they may act differently. And if you have a situation where there's mass disobedience and people are breaking the speed limit. Sort of every day, and it's par for the course, then you have a, a completely different problem and a separate problem, don't you?
0: Absolutely. This is going to be very, very difficult to enforce. So, on the one hand, I would, I would like to be optimistic and believe that most drivers out there, most motorists, obey the speed limits. Mm. They want to drive safely and they want to get home safely. And if the speed limit does drop, those people might have their journey slightly slower, might be slightly frustrating at times, but they will obey those speed limits and thus we'll be less likely to have accidents and if we do have accidents we're less likely to, to, to die or to have, have serious injuries. Mm. Now as you, or you're alluding to there on the other hand is the people that are not obeying the speed limits and for that we're going to need a little bit more personal responsibility from people but also for the relevant authorities to have the resources that they need to clamp down on this.
4: But can you clamp down on everybody? I think it's the question that Uh, strikes me most of all and I'm sure everybody listening to us would be able to give examples of roads where they believe the speed limit is just too low. Uh, The one that comes to my mind is all those roads around Galway. that are meant to be 50 kilometres an hour. Drive at 50 kilometres an hour on any of those roads and everybody's going to pass you by doing at least 60, if not 70 or 80.
0: You're you're making a very good point. This is going to be extremely difficult to to police and and enforce. The challenge here is is to give the the relevant bodies the the resources that they need. But we don't necessarily need to catch everybody. I think for a lot of people, just the, let's say, the the threat or the the knowledge that they might be caught will cut down on speeding. And it brings us along to another point that, that we're a little bit concerned about is that the, the enforcement of it has to be targeted at the place that is going to save lives and cut down on accidents. Yeah. So you're alluding to a certain type of road there. Are, are people, you know, are there a lot of road deaths? Are there a lot of accidents in those stretches? Perhaps there's other areas that the guardie or that speed van or whatever sort of body or enforcement we're putting in place can focus on that. Mm. Because let's come back to the main point here let's cut down on the tragic deaths and the awful situation Absolutely. That out
4: there. Yeah, but it, it, is it uh, a sledgehammer to crack a, a nut because uh, I have a uh, sense that what is happening here is that you've got the majority of motorists uh, who drive at the uh, in line with the law drive, don't don't exceed the speed limit um, but they're being punished uh, because of a, a small few uh, who uh, drive at excessive speeds and probably uh, break the law I- in many other ways. Uh, and if you're, let's say, reducing the speed limit from a hundred to eighty, the hope is uh, that those people will do a hundred because you'll al- you'll always have instead of doing eighty, they'll do a hundred. Uh, or I- instead of, of uh, driving at eighty kilometres on a road uh, that's designated uh, as an eighty k. Uh, uh, MH Road. Now that they'll uh, drive, uh, it's that's going to be reduced to sixty. But instead of driving at sixty, they'll drive at eighty because there's people who'll always feel that oh, I can go ten or twenty percent over uh, what the speed limit is.
0: That that may well happen, but this comes back to a point about the effect of of speeding. So, if you do reduce the speed that that person was travelling at, and even if they are obeying the speed limit, accidents do happen sometimes. Now, if you get into an accident or let's say you hit a pedestrian at 30 kilometres an hour in an urban area instead of the 50 that was there previously, they are far, far less likely to die or to suffer serious injuries. So even for those people that are driving at the speed limit, if you do lower those limits, people are much less likely to have accidents. And again, we understand it's going to frustrate some people, it's going to slow down journeys a little bit, mm. but it comes back to that key point that we alluded to before.
4: Yeah, but you know, we'll be driving at 80, which would be the maximum speed limit, watching somebody overtake us at 100. Uh, and uh, I suppose you can't help but feel aggrieved that your journey is taking longer to try and put manners on people?
0: Yep, yeah, per- perhaps, um, and, and if we had enough in- enforcement out there and if there was enough personal responsibility amongst people that did that normally choose to speed, then perhaps we wouldn't have gotten to this situation. With 184 people dying last year, 10 already this year were on track to, to beat last year, which is uh, a, a terrible way of phrasing it in terms of beating it, but mm. those numbers are going up and up, And you know, this, speeding is not going to be, you know, putting speed limits is not a silver bullet. Let's not forget about distracted driving, about drink driving, drug driving. And there's a whole host of areas. Um, you know, simply reducing the speed limits is not going to solve this problem. There's a lot to do. But while we're waiting for the, the, the you know, let's not wait for the perfect solution to improve the situation in the meantime.
4: Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, It looks uh, as though uh, this will be implemented and that we'll see uh, these uh, speed limits uh, reduced. What what about 30 kilometres in in towns uh, and housing estates? It's very, very difficult, as I'm sure you know, Blake, to drive at 30 kilometres an hour. It seems very, very slow when you're in a car. Uh, Will people uh, be willing to do that?
0: say we will you know I'd hazard to guess that that we'll see a lot of people that won't be willing to do that but the the key thing is if you're on a a bike or if you're pushing a buggy or if your child is crossing the road and they do it at the wrong time that car that's travelling at 30 kilometres there is very very fast when it connects with a human being so, on the one hand, yeah, it's a little bit frustrating to drive that a bit slower, but it comes back to the, the the reason for this in
4: the first place. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us today. Blake Boland, Head of Communications with AA Ireland. Uh, a few people in touch with us about speed limits and we'll come to those comments and indeed more comments about recycling bottles and cans, uh, which has prompted a huge response. But if you would like to make comment on our programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you and let me tell you the ways of Getting in touch: zero four one nine eight three two thousand is our telephone number. If you want to ring us and make comment, that's zero four one nine eight three two thousand. You can also text or WhatsApp 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie.
1: Michael Reed,
4: Reed on, on LMFM. Now, that's uh, one way of getting in touch with us. You can phone us on 41983 text or WhatsApp 0861800658. As you've been hearing, email michael at lmfm.ie. And some of those messages, as I say, a number of people in touch with us about speed limits. Uh, one text here from somebody who says, Hi, Michael, as an example, I can mute. I beg your pardon, I commute home through Kilcloon, which is near Dunboyne. There's ramps and the speed limit is 50 kilometres. There's plenty of signs and regularly there's crazy drivers who overtake me on the ramps doing 80k. You've got to be joking. Uh, Thank you indeed uh, for your message. Pat in Navin in touch with us about that too. Pat says, speed limits in general are not the issue. All this will do is waste more money That's 15 million on the signs, isn't it, Pat? Uh, And cause driver frustration in some areas. Driver mentality and enforcement, Pat says, are the real issues. And that's what needs to be tackled. Mary says, it won't make any difference, Michael. You know why accidents happen. It's not really going to make any difference to the people that speed. Cars struggle at 50. It's all about revenue. Councils should look at spending on housing and other issues instead. Uh, Onto the bottles. uh, Somebody's saying, will the recycling centre still take cans and bottles? I, I don't think there's any question about that, and I'm sure that they will. But what you'll be doing is putting 15 cent or 25 cent into the bin when you bring it to the recycling centre, because if you brought it back, to the shop you'd get that as a deposit because you've paid extra for the plastic bottle or the plastic can uh, of minerals or whatever it was and the idea is you pay it when you buy it and then you get it back when you bring back the empty bottle. Bridie was in touch with us earlier on saying she uh, didn't see the, the point of bringing back uh, empty bottles when she has a bin that she's already paid for, but she's just been back in touch saying uh, that she was actually talking about wine bottles. Uh, so uh, that does make a difference because I don't think uh, glass bottles come under it uh, at all. Uh, it's only plastic bottles and cans. Um, we'd another message then of a switch screens from the text messages to the WhatsApp messages Uh, somebody saying just listening about the bottle return scheme but sure if you're paying a deposit when you buy the bottle uh, and then you get it refunded you're not really getting anything for recycling Um, well you're bringing back the bottle and that means it's being recycled no you're not being rewarded for recycling it's just an incentive it's not a punishment if you don't it's an incentive to do it Uh, you will be punished I suppose if you don't recycle uh, and that's because you'll be throwing money in the bin or you'll be giving it to somebody else as the case may be on speed limits PJ is whatsapping us and he says how will speed limit reductions prevent single car accidents which we hear a lot of the accidents uh, are single cars pedestrians and cyclists not wearing vests or having lights uh, PJ says Well, unfortunately, there's a lot of truth in that, uh, but uh, I don't think it's exclusively for single car accidents uh, when it comes to the uh, cars, PJ, unfortunately. Um, Somebody else says it's not speed that causes accidents. It's people bullying and taking stupid, dangerous chances on the road because they're in a hurry. Just listening to your show, says somebody else, and I I can't believe uh, that it takes a Dublin councillor to point out the lack of transparency on Louth County Council. Where are our councillors? That's from Kate, who is a mother of uh, two school-going children from Dundalk and a voter. Thanks, Kate. Well, I I can tell you where the councillors are. They're uh, meeting now at uh, the monthly meeting of Louth County Council, uh, and apparently uh, that discussion on um, the... Uh, or the, the motion uh, that was withdrawn from the council. I suppose that's the, 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 the uh, main issue here is relating to that motion. But uh, uh, the Freedom of Information Act, uh, the Local Government Act, uh, all the sort of stuff that's related to that motion, if you get me, uh, that that discussion is still ongoing. Uh, that meeting started at 10 o'clock so uh, we're hoping that we'll be able to bring some news to you from that meeting before we finish up today otherwise I'm sure you'll be hearing about it uh, on LMFM's bulletins uh, throughout uh, the rest of uh, the day because I I think there has been a lot of interest in that story going back to the messages though uh, and uh, another WhatsApp message then about that from Jackie Taff who says in light of the events over the past year uh, involving the actions of the CEO of Louth County Council and its councillors, in my view, trust with the public appears irreparably damaged. Rebuilding this trust, especially with victims and survivors of child sexual abuse, requires transparency. The legal advice cited by the CEO must be shared with the councillors, turning this into a moral matter uh, and one of conscience. Please remember... People of Drogheda, as Drogheda approaches its, approaches its local elections, it's crucial for us, the residents, to remember how the issue of child sexual abuse, victims and survivors was handled and how we were treated by local representatives. Transparency, accountability, child sexual abuse victims, authenticity, uh, leadership, truth and And justice are just some of uh, the words uh, that Jackie uh, puts uh, towards the end of her message. And thanks, as always, Jackie Taff for getting in touch. Uh, Michael, new speed limits. uh, There's not much thinking gone into this urban speed limit. 30 kilometres an hour, that's 18.6 miles an hour. There will be runners and cyclists and scooters who will be overtaking you. Interesting. Uh, Somebody else says, Michael, it's five cents per bottle. Uh, All we'll get is people rummaging through bins. Um, No, I I think it's... uh 15 and 25 cents per bottle or can, depending on the size of uh, the different uh, bottles that are are available. Uh, But uh, thanks for that. Now, uh, somebody else then, another message to us. Uh, A lot of people in touch today. It's great to be getting some messages. Tom and Navin uh, has taken the time to Texas and he he says, Good morning, Michael. Uh, Regarding speed limits, speed kills. If you don't speed, you won't cause An accident and you will stop deaths on our roads. By up to 99%, he says, speed kills. It's speed that kills and this needs to get into people's head. Speed kills. And I think Tom would say you can't say it often enough. Margaret says changing the speed limits will be a total waste of 15 million euro. That's the cost they're estimating. Uh, in terms of changing the signs. So you replace uh, 100 uh, kilometres an hour speed sign with one for 80 and you replace an 80 with one for 60. I presume they'd be able to recycle some of them uh, around uh, different places. Uh, But even at that, they're saying it's going to cost 15 million euro. Margaret says, this is a total waste of taxpayers' money as the people who speed now will continue to speed. If they already cared about limits on our roads, they would be abiding by them. Betty in touch with us and she says, hi, Michael, my sister was knocked down in her own housing estate and... She was left with lifelong injuries, and the man who did it got back into his car and was revving the car to drive off while she was on the ground. Lucky enough, two joggers and a taxi stopped him. Dreadful, Betty. Dreadful. Uh, Best wishes to your sister, and uh, thanks for sharing that story with us. 0419832000 0419832000 is our telephone number. our text and WhatsApp number is 0861800658 email Michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM Uh, The latest uh, Child Law Project report has uh, been published and Dr Maria Corbett CEO with uh, the Child Law Project joins us now and a very good morning to you Maria, thank you uh, indeed uh, for joining us and thank you as well for your report uh, for that matter because uh, these reports give us an insight into something uh, that was very much hidden from public view, what happens in family courts because of uh, the obligation to protect the identity of minors Uh, but you go into the courts and report uh, on some of uh, the ways uh, that uh, public services are looking after some very vulnerable people Uh, in this particular report uh, you're looking at 54 cases uh, from the district court and the high court and uh, there certainly has been some shortfalls or or, or that's the way it would seem and uh, I think that's uh, some of the criticism that you're uh, highlighting today for people.
1: Yeah, good morning Michael. Um, exactly what, what what we do is we try to, to understand and to follow cases that are being heard um, around children being taken into care um, and some other issues around worship and as you said unfortunately in this volume there's a lot of uh, failings coming into the courts uh, whereby TUSLA or other state agencies aren't doing living up to their responsibility to children in care. But that said, as yeah. always, there's also cases where there's a lot of praise for social workers, foster carers and social care staff that work in residential care. Um, and a lot of the time when we're looking at the cases, we can see that the efforts that they're going to, to ensure the children are safe by taking them into care. And often that can be Um, a kind of a lengthy, complex process, you
4: know. Mm, Yeah, Uh, and there's some very hard uh, stories. Uh, You're highlighting patterns, uh, if you like, uh, that you see in these cases when they come before the courts. Issues like parental mental health, addiction, homelessness, domestic violence, Uh, and of course there's a child at the centre of of these problems.
1: Yeah, exactly. Those issues where the parents aren't able to care for their child and that leads the child to either be neglected or abused that would be the main reason for children coming into care and so we can see a a number of cases here where where TUSLA has engaged with families and decided that the children aren't safe and have taken them into care and in some cases the parents can work and get past their difficulties in particular around addictions they can get past them and they can be reunified with their child. And we do have include examples of that in this volume, which is, which is positive. But unfortunately for some children, they will remain in care for the rest of their lives. They may have access, like contact with their parents, but effectively they will be raised either in foster homes or they'll be, go into residential care. Um, and I suppose some of the difficulties then that we're seeing and some of the failings that we've identified is what happens when children are in care, because... At the moment, unfortunately, there's a lot of pressure on TUSLA in terms of their ability to provide certain placements. So placements are foster care homes or residential care placements. And there's um, a shortage of those placements at the moment, and we're seeing that in some of the cases whereby there isn't a placement for the child, where the child has had multiple emergency placements. It's not a again. I think the the work that's really great in uh holding Toothler to account, bringing cases back in week on week, week, each month, maybe as early as each week, to try and look for an update to see what progress is being made and can a placement be found. So mm-hmm. a lot of kind of oversight going on on some of these cases in the courts.
4: Yeah, uh, as I say, some of uh, the stories that you're reporting on really are uh, difficult, very, um, uh, very, very difficult. Very. Uh, I mean, you're talking about uh, children in. in uh, these situations uh, where um, the father isn't known uh, in one case you say uh, the mother had abandoned uh, the child um, there was a case of a, a child found by guardy next to their mother who had died and there was particular concerns about that case I think. Yeah I mean
1: there, there, there is a general policy in social work that you try and keep children at home with their parents that's the, kind of the starting point and, and TUSLA would engage in family support to try and keep children at home but in this case there's a question being raised as whether the child was safe at home and should should, should there have been more action taken and in that case the, the guards were called, the mother had died and the child as a young toddler was found in you know to be in a room that really wasn't, it was appalling conditions is how it's described and the man that was in the company of the child was somebody who certainly would be raising safeguarding issues around around that individual and there was some allegations against him and, and, and him potentially being violent. So I suppose what, what came in that case is that they were looking to review that case and to understand were, was enough safeguards being put in place. Um, the, these, these issues that we're, we're looking at, part of the difficulty of these cases is some of them is around placements, some of them is around Tusla, but some of the issues that, and the failings that we've identified is actually around other agencies of the state um, not playing their role and, and, and a, a kind of poor interagency cooperation So one of them is around education. So obviously children are in care, but they're still hopefully connected to their schools and engaged in education. But actually, in a number of cases, the children are out of education. Um, In one case, there was a boy who's nearly 15 and he hadn't had a day of secondary school education he was in residential care, and there was an issue about him not attending school, so therefore needing a tutor, like a ho- you know a home tutor, mm. uh, to give him a couple of hours of tuition a week, um, and there was wranglings in the court, again with the judge having to play a strong role in bringing in um, uh, bringing the kind of the state uh, into the case and um, threatening to bring a witness summons for the Department of Education to bring them in to to find out, could they not make progress? So prior to the, the court hearing date, progress was made and, and the tutor was identified. And again, ongoing discussions about who would pay for it. But really what we're trying to highlight in in in... Uh, in them in, in showcasing these these um, reports, is that we need to make sure that all of the arms of the state are mm. working together. Because it's obviously, critical to keep children connected to school, connected to education, it's very much a, a, a mental health issue in terms of you know to have good mental health to mm. be and um, hope for the future, but also just in terms of stability. Yeah, um, and there's another case there about the HSE, and I think that's an issue that we see a lot, which is that children in care, a high proportion of them um, have disability and mental health needs. And so while TOOFLIC can provide them with the care placement, they can do the child protection piece, they need the HSE to engage around disability and mental health. And in this particular case, uh, the HSE had been engaging with the family, the child had a disability, but there was no placement organised by the HSE for the child. And a, a kind of a crisis point was reached and the child ended up remaining in a hospital, being placed in a hospital um, for almost two, two months uh, and in really awful circumstances whereby the child was in a room in a local in a hospital, a regional hospital uh, next to the A&E without any education or connection mm. to peers or at one point uh, for a period the child didn't have a TV or access to the internet so really Dreadful. you know stark circumstances for that child. Yeah. And in that case the, the court very clearly said that the HSE needed to do more, needed to engage in, in providing um, a placement for this child and engaging in providing supports for the child's disability needs.
4: OK. It's dreadful. We hope that your reporting, though, will make the lives of vulnerable children in, in this country somewhat better. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Great. That's Dr. You. Maria Corbett, who's uh, the CEO with the Child Law Project. Now, some fairly dramatic uh, stuff coming from the meeting of Louth County Council. Uh, We're hearing uh, that the chief executive has made a statement about the Freedom of Information Act and how 892 documents uh, that hadn't existed, apparently, uh, were suddenly found when they were ordered to do a proper search. Uh, She's been explaining uh, to the council um, why that was and. Uh, that uh, we were asked uh, to refine a search uh, and uh, 30 relevant documents were found out of the 892 documents, um, which is uh, what should have been discovered in the first place. Uh, the chief executive of Louth County Council, Joan Martin, has uh, responded to what she says were outrageous attacks on on her and her officials on this radio programme. When she was dealing with the freedom of Drogheda being rescinded from Brother Edmund Garvey, she said, I wasn't engaging in this on a personal level. At all times, my interest was the law because that is my statutory obligation. She says, I dealt with uh, the motion from the point of uh, view of my role legally. But she says she's not going to reveal that legal advice Uh, and she says councillors are welcome to get their own legal advice on the matter but if they do she doesn't want to hear about it on LMFM the next morning. What on earth is going on there? Why not? Is this not public information? Is there something about telling the public what's going on? Why does she not want to hear about it on LMFM? That is... The local radio station for the constituency that she is the chief executive of the local authority, which is put in place as a public service, as a public servant, she is meant to serve the people. Uh, and she also said that councillors are welcome to move against her for her suspension or her removal. Joan Martin has been telling councillors that she councillors that she has almost 47 years of public service served at this stage and she says mostly for the people of Loud uh, and comments made were personally uh, were highly personal for something that has nothing to do with me other than my role. Thanks uh, indeed uh, to Ruth uh, for getting that news uh, to us uh, from the Council Chamber this morning. I think we'll be hearing more about it uh, in the bulletins and uh, possibly on tomorrow's programme as well. Dramatic stuff, as I, I say. Uh, but that's uh, where we have to leave you for today. Thanks to Maggie Maguire, who researched. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. <coughs>